You're welcome. I have all the power. <laughs> Not in real life, but in this small virtual way, and that's how I get my kicks. Okay. Yes. Imagine if in real life you could just mute people at will. <laughs> it is kind of fun. Okay. So today we are going to be talking about some Hasidus relating to the weekly Parsha. Um, and again, I will try and finish about 10 minutes before the hour so that there is time for follow-up questions. If um, I say something that you don't understand or you have a question or comment, by all means, in the middle, please voice it after you unmute yourself, of course. Now, what I want to do is I want to talk about this topic in two basic stages. The first stage is I want to make sure we're all on the same page with regard to the weekly Torah reading. So I'm going to give a brief summary of the idea as it is in the Torah. Okay, and it's just straightforward, simple. And then afterwards we'll dive into the um, explanation according to Hasidic teachings. So one of the, not to the whole Parsha, one of the things in this week's Parsha is actually the first thing is the mitzvah of the para aduma. The para aduma is the red heifer. And this is a very strange mitzvah. Okay? In order to understand a little bit of the background of the mitzvah, there is something called tuma. Tuma is, is a Hebrew word, um, and it doesn't have a like, good translation. We call it impurity because we don't have a good English translation, but there's just no, there isn't a word for it, for it. But it's this kind of a a spiritual impurity, I guess you could put up, you could say. And there are different kinds. The most difficult to remove is the kind known as tumas mace, or the impurity of a dead body. And this um, is contracted when one comes into contact with a human corpse, whether through direct physical contact or other things which halacha deems as contact, such as being in the same building or tent or moving a dead body without touching it, etc. And when one gets this tumas mace, this, this impurity of the dead, it creates all sorts of restrictions that are not really relevant nowadays, but in temple times, they're extremely relevant. One cannot enter the temple, one cannot participate in sacrificial rites, one cannot partake of consecrated food. Um, it's quite a serious um, issue because it prevents a person from participating in anything associated with the temple. On the, and if one does, it's considered to be a very grave sin. Um, we won't talk about the punishments. So, obviously, somebody in temple times who is contracted to Mace would like to be removed from this, uh, this state. And the way that's done is with the mitzvah of the paraduma, the red heifer. Now, the mitzvah in short, there's obviously a tremendous amount of details. But in short, the mitzvah is to take a cow, which is red, not that you paint it red, but it has to be naturally red, not like fire engine red, but more red than brown. And it has to be completely red. If it has even two black hairs, it's not valid. And the, this cow also has to be unblemished. It can't have any physical defects and it can never have been used for any work. So. If you used it to carry something, put on its back, it's invalid. So it's quite rare to find such a cow. And then this cow is taken to a mountain facing the temple so that you can see the temple entrance opposite the valley. And the, and the cow, in the presence of the priest, is slaughtered. And then the priest um, sprinkles the blood in the direction of the temple seven times. And then the cow is burnt the entire cow, all of it. And there's some, there's some plants that are thrown into this fire. And when the cow has been completely burnt to ash, that ash is then taken and placed on spring water, which has been put into a vessel. You have to go to a natural spring, get some water, put it in a vessel, and then put some of this ash from the cow on in the water. And then you sprinkle this water using a special procedure on the person who wants to become pure. And this has to be done twice. There's a seven day period since they have to wait since they've contacted the dead body. On the third and the seventh day, they have to have this water with a little bit of ash sprinkled upon them. 
and then they immerse into a mikvah, and then they are pure, they can enter the temple and participate in sacrificial rites, etc. I skipped out a lot of details, but that's the basic mitzvah. There's the red heifer, there's the burning of the cow into ash, and then spring, that ash is then put in, in spring water that's been put into a vessel and sprinkled on the person who seeks to be purified. Okay? And you thought Shabbos was weird. Okay. Don't even get me started on bird sacrifices. Okay, now... What we're going to do is now that we have a basic understanding of the mitzvah, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on how this mitzvah is viewed in Hasidus. Um, now, there's actually many aspects of the mitzvah. We're going to focus on one. And we're going to center around a question. And the question is that when the Torah introduces this mitzvah, the mitzvah of the paraduma, the red heifer, it introduces it with a very odd turn of phrase. The Torah says, Zois chukas which translates, this is the law of the Torah. Now, in the Torah, we have 613 mitzvahs, 613 commandments, and the paraduma is only one of them. So the idea that you would introduce one individual mitzvah with the title, with the heading, this is the law of the Torah, as if somehow this is the main idea of the entire Torah, is a bit odd you usually find expressions like, this is the law of whatever, or this is the teaching of whatever, right? So you would expect to be, this is the law of the cow, or something like that. Why this mitzvah is taken to be somehow exemplifying the entire Torah is a, is, is, is a question that needs an answer. And that's what we're going to focus on. In what sense can we view the mitzvah of the paraduma as actually emblematic of the theme of the spirit of all of the mitzvahs, such that it would make sense for the Torah to describe it as the law of the entire Torah, that this somehow embodies what the entire Torah is about. Okay? Now, obviously, that can only be understood in a spiritual sense because um, physically, the entire Torah is not about um, killing red cows and sprinkling their blood and take burning them to ash, etc., etc. That's obviously not what we do. In fact, um, this mitzvah has only been done nine times in all of history. The first one was done by Moshe. And the, and the tenth and the final time we've done will be when Mashiach comes. So it's not even a mitzvah that people do in any sort of regularity, even during temple times. Right? The temple stood, the first temple, 410 years. The second for 420 years. The tabernacle existed for another 400 years. And in all that time, only nine times was this mitzvah done. So it's not something we do in a physical sense regularly, but spiritually, it serves as a model to understand what the Torah is all about. So that's what the question we're going to be focusing on answering today. Now, we're going to start by prefacing a quote from the Sefer Yitzirah. The Sefer Yitzirah it, it means the Book of Creation. Does anyone know who wrote the Sefer Yitzirah? The book of creation. Adam? Close. Close. Oh, it was Avraham. It was Avraham. Avraham wrote it. It was later redacted by Rabbi Akiva a few thousand years later. So the version we have is, is, not, the, is not the exact version that Avraham wrote, but the core of the book was put together by, by Avraham, although it's quite possible he didn't actually write it. It was just oral. But it was compiled. It was con the, the version we have was redacted by Rabbi Kiva. And the Sefer Yetzirah is a book of, of Mishnah. It's a book of terse, deep teachings. But unlike the classic Mishnah that we're all familiar with, which is about oral, which is about the law, the halacha, these are all mystical teachings. Okay? So the quote from the, from the Sefer Yetzirah that we're going to be using is, if your heart runs... Type it in the chat so everyone can see it. Return to one.
why is the chat not working? Okay. There we go. Now I got it to work. Okay, if your heart runs, return to one, which I'm sure everyone understands exactly what that means, right? So obvious. So the first thing is to realize that it's actually broken up into two parts. There's the first part, if your heart runs, and then there's the second part, return to one. Now, the heart, uh, there's heart there twice, sorry, should only be heart once. It, the heart is the seat of emotion and the seat of desire, right? I'm sure everyone's familiar with that sim symbolism, all right, that the heart represents desire, right? So when we speak about the first part, if your heart runs, that's referring to some th concept of desire. And running, well, running is a very interesting metaphor because if you're running to something you desire, what does that imply about what you desire? That you want it. Well, obviously you desire it, but right. But if you're running to something you desire, what else does it imply about what you desire? That it's fleeting. That it's fleeting? Why does it have to be fleeting? It's elusive. Why does it have to run to it? Well, it could be far away. It could be quite stable, right? I mean, if you're running to it, then that obviously means that you're, it's something that, you know, has the ability of walking away and you want to, I guess either you can, you can look at it as you want to get to it quickly, or it looks like something that is transient that you're going to, it'll be gone before you, if you don't make it there right away. Okay. Rabbit. But either way, it's not here, right? I've got to go, I've got to go over there and it's an effort to get over there. And it's, there's some sort of journey to get over there in order, but if it, if what I desire is with me, right then I don't run to it. I hold on to it. I, 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 I grab it, right? But running implies that it's, that it's distant, right? And that it's a, an exertion to get to it. So what, what, this, what, what this is describing is um, desiring something that is actually very far away from you. And so to, to get what you desire, you're going to have to travel a great distance and you don't want to wait because you desire very much. So you want to go quickly. So you run. Okay. So that's what the first part describes. Now, what it's actually describing is, a des is desiring God. Okay. Now, why would we could think of God as being distant? God, what makes God distant? I mean, God is not like an object on the other side of the earth who's very far away. So what, what about God is distant from us? Like and the idea, he... yeah. Wait, wait, are you asking a question? I, it's always hard with the Zoom to know if people are going to answer. So if you have an answer, by all means, go for it. Well, I guess like it just because like it also takes like a lot of work to get close to him. It's not like obvious. Well, but, but, but why does it take so much work to get close to him? Isn't God everywhere? Isn't it because God's quite an abstract concept? It's not like a physical, tangible. He's not physically tangible that we can see him and reach out to him. So that's why we have to work harder because you're kind of working towards something that you can't see and will never have actual physical feedback from. Okay, that's part of it. But let's go a little bit deeper. God is not physical. So you can't touch him with your hands or see him with your eyes. But God is also not limited in any sense. So we have many different ways of experiencing. We can experience with our physical senses, touch, sound, sight. We can experience things emotionally, right? How do you experience hatred or love, right? You experience them emotionally, right? Someone, someone who writes a thesis paper, about hatred does not necessarily mean they've experienced hatred, right? Someone who, someone who, someone could write an entire analysis of love doesn't mean they actually felt love, right? Love, hate, jealousy, compassion. These are things we, we can relate to by feeling them, right? Then there are things we can understand, right? Calculus, philosophy, 
economics, right? These are things we understand intellectually, conceptually, right? But if God is not an object you can touch with your hands and God is not a feeling you can feel emotionally and God is not an idea you can understand, then how are you supposed to relate to God? How are you supposed to be in touch with God? How are you supposed to um, touch metaphorically God? And the issue basically comes down to the idea that God is what's called transcendent. God is beyond all the limited modes of being we have. We have a physical modality of being. We're, we're physical. We, we, we exist in the physical body, time and space. We do physical actions. We exist in an emotional sense, right? We feel love and hate and jealousy and compassion, right? And we, we exist intellectually, right? We have ideas and concepts that we use to make sense of reality. And that's basically it, right? We have an intellectual aspect, we have an emotional aspect, we have a physical aspect. And basically everything can fit into one of those three things. But God is not a physical object and God is not an emotion. And God is not an idea. So how are we supposed to be in touch with God? God transcends all of those things. And so the, the, the sense that a person has is that God exists in some higher plane of reality, some otherworldly transcendent plane. And as long as we are trapped by our physical, emotional, intellectual selves, there's no real way for us to really be in touch with God. This is the uncomfortable truth of mystical thinking, which is that God is transcendent. And by desiring God, you're desiring something you can't have while holding on to your physical, emotional, or intellectual self. And so someone that genuinely desires God, there's this running away from their humanity and their physical and emotional, intellectual existence to try and escape to something higher, something transcendent. Right. Now, but the Savior, the Savior Tzir doesn't end there. It says then return to one. Now, what does returning connote? If you're returning somewhere, what does that imply about that place? You've been there before. You've been there before. Yeah. You've been there before, right? So the idea of returning is instead of trying to escape our concrete, limited existence, the Savior here is telling us actually go back. I know you're trying to run towards God in this higher transcendent plane, but go back, go back. Don't, don't, don't keep running after God and trying to ascend to this transcendence, to this ethereal otherness that, that, that's beyond the horizon. Go back to your mundane, physical, emotional, intellectual life that you are familiar with. Now, why would you go back there if you desire the transcendence of God? And the answer to that is this idea called one. And what, 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 what Jewish mysticism explains, and it's elaborated tremendously in Chassidus, but in general is the idea that God being one means that God is not relegated to a certain place or a certain mode or a certain anything. God permeates everything. God is present in everything. God is not found exclusively in transcendence. God is also present in the everyday. So while God is not limited to the physical or limited to the emotional or limited to the intellectual, he can be found there. And so when a person realizes that God is actually not distant, but close, well then there's no need to run after God. But in fact, then a different experience occurs. If, if you all of a sudden were to realize that you're in the presence of God, that God is here and now with you, having already appreciated how transcendent God is, the effect that would have on a person is they would feel humbled. They would feel small. They would feel submissive. If you want just a, a simple analogy to this, think about somebody that you really, really admire. You think that they're incredible. Okay? And now imagine you turn around, standing on at the bus stop or something, you turn around and they're standing right there next to you. Do you just open your mouth and start talking about how wonderful it is to meet them? Or do you feel tongue-tied? Do you feel 
this embarrassment, not because you're afraid that they're going to do something to you, just it, there's this sense of smallness because you have this such deep awe for this person. Does that make sense what I'm talking about? So a person who was actually struck, and it really is like being struck by lightning, struck by the realization that God is not found exclusively in mystical transcendence, but God is present everywhere and in everything. They go from having this deep desire to this sense of humility and submission. That's the return to one. Right? So the heart running is the desire for God who's transcendent. And the returning is the subsequent realization that God is present here and now in the, in, the, in, the, in the human life that I live, which is physical and emotional and has intellectual aspects to it. Now, one could ask, why don't we just skip right to the end? Why do we have to desire the transcendence? If God is here all along, why can't we just skip right to the end and recognize God is here? Does anyone have an idea why, why, this, why the Savior here tells us to return to one only after the heart runs? Only after we have the desire to escape our, limit, our limitations? Anyone? Why can't you just jump to acknowledging that God is present here and now? Um realize once we once we desire to be transcending and we want to become we want to like go outside of ourselves um only then can we be truly humbled because we really see how amazing Hashem is so right right if you don't have the desire right then there you're coming from a place of indifference and to accept something from a place of indifference is easy but it's also meaningless right I can say yeah yeah God is found everywhere great what's for lunch that doesn't humble me, right? It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't carry a punch, so to speak. The only way for that to be meaningful is after, as you put it, I have this desire to transcend, I have this desire to, to go out of myself. Then it means something to me, then it resonates. So there's this back and forth between desire, which has this element of running and escaping, versus this acceptance that God is actually present here, which has this sense of humility and awe and submission. Okay. Now, if, if that dynamic is working properly, then you've accomplished the whole Torah. That's what the whole Torah is. All the myths of the Torah are about maintaining and facilitating that dynamic. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to see how this dynamic is actually symbolized in the mitzvah of the paradigm of the red heifer. And it's not just symbolized, but it actually gives us some insight to how to go about this more practically. Okay. So we're going to focus on four things in the mitzvah of paradigm, four, four things in the mitzvah of the red heifer, and what they symbolize and how this relates to this idea of running to God and returning to God. That we're running to God is that the sense that God is a transcendent and we desire God versus returning to God is the recognition that he's here, which brings us to a sense of humility, a sense of submission. Okay, and the four things we're going to focus are, number one, the cow. What does the cow represent? Number two, we're going to speak about what burning the cow represents. Number three, we're going to talk about the water. The spring water, what does that represent? And finally, we're going to speak about the vessel, that the spring water and the ash have to be put into the vessel. So again, we're going to talk about the cow, the burning, but burning the cow to ash, what does that represent? The spring water, and finally, the vessel. Yeah. Can I ask a question? So doesn't transcendence sort of denote that we can't experience God? Isn't that sort of, then why, I don't. Why would you want something you can't have? Yeah. And then like, why, when, you know, then you're like looking, then you say to look around you that he's already here. If, if he's transcendent and we can't experience him, what good is it knowing that he's here? 
So all of that will become clear as we go through the symbolism. Okay. So we're actually going to tackle the desire question first. Okay. The cow symbolizes our animal soul. There's a lot of symbolism in that, but we're just going to jump to the end and say it symbolizes the animal soul. Okay. Um, you think cow, animal, animal soul, good enough for right now. There's more to it, but we'll leave it at that. Now, an important point about the animal soul is that the animal soul has a characteristic that the godly soul does not have. Okay? And that characteristic is desire, what's called in Hebrew taiva. The godly soul does not have desire. It is not capable of desire in and of itself. The animal soul is capable of desire. Now, let's talk about what desire is. Okay. The, our, sages, our sages speak about uh, a, a, an interesting phenomenon that we find by people, that if you have $100, you want $200. And if you have $200, what do you want? $400, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the question is, if $400 is so good, why don't you just want the $400 to begin with? Why does the person with 100 want 200? And then once he gets to 200, now he wants 400. Just want 400 from the beginning. Wouldn't that be, make more sense? So why is it that they first want 200, they get the 200, and only then do they want the 400? Why? Anyone have an answer? Because once you have like a little bit, you want more and more. You want more and more, okay? This is the essence of desire. The essence of desire is that it's insatiable. Insatiable means it cannot be satisfied. If you are hungry and you eat, that's not really desire. Why not? Because it's needed. Right. And so once you've eaten your fill, what happens? You're full. You're yeah, you're full. You're sated. You're done, right? And by the way, if we only ate that way, would anybody have any issues with like healthy eating? No. Okay. If you sit down, right, with a financial planner and figure out how much money you need, given your socioeconomic circumstance in order to raise your family and make sure you're secured in case of a disaster and you have enough put away for retirement and you can marry off your kids, et cetera, et cetera. And then you figure out what kind of job you would need to, to earn that kind of money. And then you go earn that kind of money. Is there any desire in that? That desire? No. It's sating a need, right? And the idea is that need or, or, or if you want to use other words, will, these things, they can be satisfied. You can fulfill them. What desire, what makes desire different is desire is that it's not about what I lack that I could then have. It's that I can never have enough. Right? Our sages say that a person lives entire life and he hasn't fulfilled even half of his desires. They think, well, if you just live long enough, maybe you can live up, fulfill all your desires. The answer is no. You can't fulfill all your desires because the nature of desire is it can't be fulfilled. If you get what you desire, desire makes you want something else, something more, something beyond. Okay? Is desire rational? No. Okay? Are animals rational? Like, do you sit down and have a reasoned conversation with the cow as to, like, why? Like, like, it just sounds ridiculous. I mean, maybe in children's stories, right, where we anthropomorphize the animals, but, right. So, desire is irrational. Now, would a rational being made of flesh and blood who exists physically, emotionally, intellectually ever decide that the thing that they're lacking in their life is an unknowable, transcendent God? Is that a rational thing to decide that that's what you need in life? You're physical, God is not. You're emotional, God is not. You're intellectual, God is not. Like, you're lacking God. I mean, you might be lacking some of the stuff he provides, like safety, security, meaning, purpose, 
you know, validation. But God, God is this unknowable transcendent other. You're not lacking God. But that's only true if you're being rational. What about from the perspective of desire? From the perspective of desire, the fact that something is beyond and unattainable, does that ever dampen one's desire? The rational part of desire? No. Right? So you see, it's, it, it's a different part of us that could desire transcendence. It's the animal part of us. Right? And that's what often people don't realize is that, yeah, your godly soul might want God because your godly soul is godly and it needs, it needs its daily God fix. That's true. But that's not desire. That's not your heart is aflame and you're running after God in this, you know, that, that's not that. That's only if the animal soul desires God because the animal soul has desire. Okay. However, what do, our, what do we desire if we would be honest with ourselves? So what are the things that we feel a desire, we feel this yearning for and if we got them, we wouldn't be satisfied. We want more, no matter how much we had. What kind of things are those things? They really consume us. They really, they occupy our thoughts and they motivate our speech and they make us do actions, which maybe aren't the best thing, right? What kinds of things are those? Are those God? Are those transcendent, holy, spiritual, profound things? Or are those more base, crass things usually? So we have a problem, which is that desire is not intrinsically bad, but our desires lead us, like you can make an example of food, right? The, the reason why, for instance, myself am quite overweight, not really extremely so, but too much so, the doctor doesn't like it, is not because I'm hungry and I eat. It's because the food tastes good and it can never have enough and I want more and I want more and I want more, right? And we have that with food. We have that with power. We have that with all sorts of things that we desire. And the desire is not really about the thing we desire because even with God, the thing we desire, we just want more of it. Okay? You ever wonder why people who have billions of dollars are concerned with their money? Like, like at a certain point, like you have so much money, there's nothing you could possibly spend it on that's really like, what would you do? So why do you have this need for more money? And the answer is because desire. Yeah. Why would you, you have these little, you know, back in the, back in the ancient times, you had these, these people, like they wanted to conquer. It's like, okay, so you have a country, you live in it and you want to be king. I can get that, right? It's good to be in charge of the country you live in. Okay. And you don't want your enemies to have power over you. Fine. So you've defeated your enemies. Why do you need to then go conquer the entire known world? Like, you know, Alexander the Great, like, what is he missing in life that he has to go, you know, subdue the Indians in India? He lives in Greece. And what's the answer? Desire. You can never have enough. So this gets us to the second point, which is what do we do with the cow in the midst of Paraduma? And by the way, this is the only time where we were, this is the only time, um, where we do all of these different processes, okay? There's some sacrifice where we, all, where we burn the cow, but none of them where we then take the ashes and mix it with water. We burn the cow. Now, what happens when you burn the cow? Now, if you've studied chemistry, um, then ignore what I'm, the, the, pretend you haven't, okay? okay? Because as a general rule, when anything is described in Hasidus, it takes... Um, the fancy word for this is a phenomenological approach, which means the way human beings experience reality rather than, you know, some sort of scientific analysis of it. So if you take something and you burn it, what's left? Ash, right? So what does every person realize? Like the ash used to be the thing, right? You have a tree, you burn the tree, the tree turned into ash. But so the stuff that the tree is made of has become ash. But there was so much more to the tree. It had a shape. It had a form. It had a structure. It had beauty, right? All of that, the fire destroyed. But the thing that the fire leaves over, the ash, that was actually the substance, the material that the tree was made out of. Okay? So when you burn something, right, what you're doing is you're not getting rid of it. You're destroying its form 
and reducing it down to its essential substance, its essential material that it's made of. Okay? I know some chemists saying, yeah, but what about the vapor that goes out? Yeah, there's, there's, more to, there's more stuff that was actually part of the tree or the whatever you burn that went up in the smoke and the vapor. But we're going to ignore that for right now. So if the animal soul is represented by the cow, then what would burning the animal soul be? It doesn't mean getting rid of it. It means getting rid of the form. And the form is not desire, but what we desire. So the idea of burning the animal is how do we remove the desires we have so that the power of desire then is directed at God rather than at crass materialistic things? How does that happen? How do you, how do you release the power of desire of the animal soul from its natural form, which is to desire base, crass, self-centered types of things? Okay, and the answer in one word is suppression. What happens if you suppress a desire? You don't. You have a desire for something, and you don't act on it. And now you don't act on it. You don't speak about it. And not only you don't speak about it. And this is critical. You don't even indulge it in your thoughts. What happens to the desire? Does it go away? Does it go away? Think about it. No. What happens? It manifests itself in different, in different ways in your life. That's right. Okay. And the reason for this is because desire, you can't get rid of desire. It's like burning. Burning doesn't get rid of the, the cow. It just turns it into ash. But the stuff is still there. Desire doesn't go away. What you can do is if you suppress a desire is that desire finds a new manifestation. Now, often this is not a healthy thing to do because often um, the, 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 the desire gets into, the, the desire manifests in something that's the easiest thing at the moment to desire, which is not necessarily the most constructive thing to desire. Right? That's where people get all sorts of weird neuroses from. But that same phenomenon can also work the other way. Right? What if you don't give yourself the opportunity to manifest desire in a negative way. That means not just not acting, but also not speaking and also not thinking, indulging. In the, but you do provide opportunities for desire to manifest in other ways, right? So that, so that the positive ways become the path of least resistance, okay? In fact, many people that excel in one particular thing, it's often not as much that they're uniquely gifted, but that all of the power of desire has been directed in that way. Sometimes because they found no other outlet that they could really have. So the burning of the cow is suppressing all of the desires, not because somehow then desire will disappear, but because then the desire, it needs to find expression. And if the only expression that it's allowed is an awareness of God, well, then the desire is going to start moving in that direction. Now, is that an easy process to take? That is something that happens easily and quickly. No. And should you indulge, in, should you decide to start suppressing all of your desires after this class because Rabbi Kaufman said that's what you're supposed to do? No, right? There's a very important rule the Mishnah teaches us, a Selecharav, you must have a mentor because a person needs to know what is the right way to apply an idea, right? If you, if, you, if you do too much too quickly, it backfires. But in principle, by not allowing the desires to manifest in an ungodly way, desire gets transformed to some other avenue that is open to it, and you can, that avenue can be God if you structure your life in the right way. And that's the idea of burning the cow. Okay? But now you're left with this desire the desire for, the, for, for something transcendent, the desire for something unknowable, something beyond. And what happens after that is the realization that even labeling God as transcendent, is answering your second question, even labeling God as transcendent is limiting. Right? God doesn't fit into our categories of mundane and transcendent. 
And so in some sense, he transcends transcendence. And in that sense, he's found even down here below in the lowly things. Okay? And that awareness, right? It, it, like water, if you pour water on fire, it, it, it puts it out, right? Fire is hot, water is cooling. So this awareness that God transcends even my notion of transcendence, which means he's here, because to say that he's not here would be to limit him, that has the humbling, the cooling down effect on the person. That's that water. But the problem with this entire experience is that's all very ethereal. It's all happening in your mind. And we all know that things that happen in our minds, right, they're fleeting. They don't stay. So in the, in the mitzvah, right, you take the, the cow, you burn it, and then the ash gets mixed with this water. But that all has to happen where? It happens in a vessel. Right? And what does a vessel do? It takes water, which is fluid, which slips through your fingers, and it allows you to hold it. It contains it. It makes it concrete. So it's not enough for a person to suddenly, for a person to bring themselves to awareness that God transcends even my notion of transcendence. He's beyond what I call beyond. And so to feel that he's somewhere out there and not right here is limiting him. That realization, you can't hold on to that in your head, you hold on to that through something more concrete. And that's the actual performance of mitzvahs. That the actual performance of mitzvahs grounds this realization. And so there's a process here of acknowledging desire, which is the cow, right? You have to acknowledge that desire, acknowledge what desire is. It's not rational, right? One of the problems that exists in, in, uh, very often is that people seek to rationalize desire. There needs to be an embrace and acceptance. I have desire and desire is not rational. It's insatiable. And that's okay. What's not okay, not, not okay in the sense that it's, I have to like beat myself up at it, but not something that I should just accept is that that insatiableness is naturally driven towards unholy and improper things. And so to burn that away by suppressing desire to transform it to something that is that yearns for the transcendent, yearns for the beyond, that's the burning of the cow. And then it's followed by the realization that no matter, no matter how awesome and transcendent God is in my mind, that's a projection of my mind. God transcends even that. And to say that God is not here is limiting him. And that realization cools the person down. It humbles the person. It softens the person. But it's also very ethereal. And so that has to be attached to something that God actually wants in this world, something concrete, which is the mitzvah. That's the vessel. That all this is done and put the ash with the water is then put into the vessel. And that basic dynamic is really what the spirit of living through the living through Torah mitzvah is all about. All of, all of the Torah mitzvah is about unifying these two opposite elements, the fire of desire and the water of submission, of humility. And so that's all symbolized in the paradum and the red heifer. Okay? So if you want to use just a, 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 a cultural reference for this, I'm sure everyone has heard of the, um, the, um, the Wizard of Oz. Yes, you've heard of the Wizard of Oz? Okay. So the Wizard of Oz starts off and I, right, with Dorothy singing about somewhere over the rainbow. Right? And where does it end off? Anybody? You have to unmute yourself. Oz. No, that's not where it ends. Oh. oh. That's the middle. Oh. Where does it end? Back at home. Yep. There's no place like home, right? You didn't know that The Wizard of Oz was secretly a Kabbalistic work, did you? Right? But that's the idea, that there's this, how, first cultivating this desire for, the un, for, for what's beyond, right? And that happens that happens to the degree that we can suppress and block off the other desires. Okay, one, just one second. And then once you have the desires, there's a realization that you don't need to run with God, you need the, the acceptance of God and practically implementing that by holding that with the actual structured life of Judaism, of Torah and mitzvahs. Now, there's a question here in the um, chat. Is there harm in burning the cow of our own animal soul? 
before you have a proper vessel, life structure properly ready, or really doesn't matter because you can just repeat the process. So the answer to that is that yes, there is harm. Because if you don't have, in other words, if you don't have the, the, the vessel on hand ready, it is quite hard to start making the vessel once you have the passion. Let me explain to you what I mean. Okay. If you are, if you keep Shabbos, okay, um, there's a lot involved in keeping Shabbos, right? There's a lot of different laws, what you can do, what you can't do, how to do everything, right? Okay. If, if keeping Shabbos is something that's kind of already integrated into how you live your life, it's kind of there for you to come back to and to put all of this experience into. But if it's not there already and you're having this deep spiritual awakening, this deep spiritual desire, and then you say, okay, now let's go, now let me teach you how to keep Shabbos. Or even if you know in the abstractly, but you're not in the habit of it, now you have to work on developing a habit of keeping Shabbos. It's very hard. I'm not saying it's impossible. It's very hard though for a person who's in such a, a, an intense and elated state to cultivate a new practice of living, okay? And the danger is, is that they might not actually do it. Um, and in, 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 um, in Jewish thought, there's this discussion of what happens if you let your heart get away from you, let your desire for God get away from you, is that it can get to the point where you can't bring it back. Now that could mean like actual death, like in the case of Aaron's two sons, but it can also mean in the sense of having some kind of a, of, 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 of a spiritual crisis where, where a person is left emptied and defeated, right? There's a story of four great sages in the Talmud who had profound spiritual experiences. Rabbi Akiva, who we previously mentioned, Ben Azai, Ben Zoma, and Elisha Ben Avua. They all had these profound spiritual awakening. They, they, they engaged in some sort of reflective practice and it was, it was amazing. Ben Azai died as a result of that. He, he, the, the, he, he, he did not, his level of spiritual awareness and his level of being able to implement that into vessels were just not in sync and he, he couldn't bring himself back together and he literally died. Ben Zoma, he didn't die but he psychologically broke down and went crazy. He could not ground himself, so he didn't die, but his mind was never the same. And Elisha Benavu is arguably the most tragic. He could not bring it back down into practice, and he became a heretic. He had to deny his own experience in order to move on in life. Okay? So... The, the danger is that it's quite hard to create the vessel when you're more, when you're having some profound experience. And then if you don't, then what happens? Does that create a split? Do people then deny their experiences? I actually had a student, I, you know, it's not the same as Benaz, I think, but I had a student in my note in the men's program many years ago. And he, um, shall we say, he had way too much spirituality and not enough Judaism. And it just kept building. He was growing in his Judaism, but the spirituality was not in any way in sync with the actual practice. And at some point, he just couldn't bring it all together. And so what did he do? He started to build a story in his head that all of his experiences were made up, kind of to reject over a year's worth of his own experiences in order to be able to drop everything and move on with a normal life. So there is a danger, right? It, 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 you know, it's, it's like they say about like building a campfire. First, you make sure you have like the safe place and you make sure you've got water to put it out and then you build the campfire, right? So there is this idea that you don't want to be cultivating something so profound and something so intense and then not know what to do with it and not be able to necessarily know how to ground it in the right way. But... So although the practice of the mitzvah really precedes this whole process, the idea that the mitzvah is filled with some meaning comes later, right? This is an important observation. 
for this process to work in a healthy way, that's using the example of Shabbos observance, first there's a Shabbos observance, then there's this burning of the cow and the transcendence and the desire and then the awareness, and then that's what makes the, and then that so makes the, the Shabbos observance profoundly meaningful. And the Shabbos observance then grounds that experience. It's very hard to do it once you have the experience and then just kind of throw in the Shabbos thing afterwards. Not saying it's impossible, but it does very difficult. Okay. I went on a while for that answer to that question. Other questions? Yes. Um, why is it that the animal, soul, that only the animal soul has this ability of desire and not the godly soul? Because the animal soul and the godly soul reflect two facets of God. The animal soul reflects, um, actually start with the godly soul because it's a little bit easier. The godly soul reflects um, the idea that God is close and also the fact that um, God is absolute and unchanging. And therefore there's a, there's a, a calmness and almost a, a rationality about everything. God is here. This is the way it is. Whereas the animal soul um, reflects the sense that, that God is, is transcendent and God is infinite and God is undefinable. And that connotes a certain distance. Hence, that's why the animal soul is quite distant from God. But it also has this, it also has this intensity of desire. So the idea of putting the godly soul and animal together in the person kind of reunifies these two facets of God. It's a mistake to think that the godly soul comes from God and the animal soul is just like this satanic force. It's not really accurate. It's just the godly soul, its connection to God is overt, whereas the animal soul requires this transformative process. One second, someone asked another question. There's a limited number of times that one can do this process. But there's no limit, but one can take bad time to... There's no limit, but it's like most things. If you try to do something at a level beyond yourself, you can create damage that may not be so easy to repair. Right? It's like, there's like, you know, it's okay to do brain surgery, but not if you don't know what you're doing. Right? Because that that's generally called murder. So there has to be this idea, um, as the Torah says, of going little by little, ma'at, ma'at. And that's where mentorship and honesty come into play. Um, you know, bringing in proportion the, lev the level of observance being in place for this, how much suppressing you can do in a, in a sustainable way, right? And how to have build a, a, an awareness of God so that the desire can express itself in a at, with God as a channel for that. And that's something that, you know, realistically, um, you start small. You don't, you don't uh, jump off the cliff. Other questions? How come we don't have this whole purification process today? Um, are you asking a historical question or a spiritual question? Um, like a bit of both. Okay, so historically... Um, the, the, when the temple was destroyed, um, we lost access to the purification, to the ashes. And so now everybody's impure. And so now you have a problem, right? If everybody's impure and we don't have that, and we don't have the, the we don't, we don't have a way to purify ourselves. We don't have a way to create, every, we don't have a way to create a new red heifer because we're impure and we don't have a temple. And we don't have the old stuff because it's been hidden away in, in exile. Um, so as long as the temple was functional, so about for, up to about 2,000 years ago, we, we had it, right? The, you know, one of the many things that we lost um, was the, 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 the ashes. And once you don't have the ashes, you have no way of purifying anybody. If no one's pure, you can't make any more ashes. And so we're kind of stuck until Mashiach comes and, um, that gets solved. That's the historical answer. The spiritual answer is that exile is related conceptually to the idea of Tumah, especially the idea of Tumas Mace. 
of this impurity that comes in contact with dead bodies. And the reason is because we know that sin came into the world as a result, sorry, death came into the world as a result of sin, right? That's the story in the Garden of Eden. And exile is the result of sin, right? So death and exile are two manifestations of the same issue, which is sin, which that itself could be elaborated on. We don't have time for that. And so it makes a certain amount of spiritual sense that in a state of exile, everyone would have the impurity associated with death since both things come from the, as an outcome of, of, of sin. And then redemption and purification is about the removal of the effect of sin. So they kind of come together. That would be the spiritual logic. Again, practically, if we have no temple, there's no restrictions that apply to anybody because they're impure. So, you know, it doesn't really affect us in any material way. All right, I think I have time for like one question or so before I have to run. So if there's a last question. Oh, okay. All right. I hope you enjoyed the class. Um, for those of you who are here on Tuesday and Wednesday, we will be resuming Tanya. Tuesday and Wednesday will be Tanya, and Sunday will be something on usually related to the weekly Torah reading with a Hasidic perspective. So I hope to see you there on Sunday, on Tuesday and Wednesday. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.